My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shada. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. <laughs> this is the last of three shows on modern slavery. And if you've listened to the previous two, you will hopefully agree that we've managed to make them accessible, even inviting, which is no mean feat for a tricky subject like this. I mean, it's not like people are bashing down the door to hang out thinking about modern slavery for 40 minutes, right? But I'm really proud of what we've done here because I think that these interviews decode the issue from different angles and they offer a way in. And I also think they're inspiring, you know, to hear from someone like Safia Mini or this week's guest, James Bartle, about how they're actively making a difference. It's all good, motivating stuff. And, and that's kind of what I want this podcast to be. I want it to empower you, to help you unleash your inner activist and get you realising that we can all make a difference. Talking of which, my new book, Rise and Resist, is nearly here. I'm really excited. It will be published on October the 1st in Australia and New Zealand, and we've organised a bunch of book tour events in different states. I will share a link, and I would absolutely love to see you there. Now let's get to this week's show. How does an ordinary Aussie bloke go from motocross riding and working as a welder to setting up a social enterprise fashion business? You're going to meet James Bartle, founder of Outland Denim. This is a candid and eye-opening interview about an extraordinary story. We talk about the tough stuff. So Outland Denim works with survivors of human trafficking and modern slavery in the sex trade industry in Cambodia, where they have this amazing workshop. And we talk about who gets trafficked, how they get there. But we also talk about who does the trafficking and why that happens. We ask, is it possible to empathise with their desperation? I mean, it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of someone who would traffic another human being, right? But that's what James Bartle is in part trying to do, to try to understand this issue from all different angles. We also talk about materials, about how organic and reduced waste is essential to the big picture on this. We discuss B Corps and value-driven business and the whole state of ethical fashion right now. 
We talk about where the industry is improving and failing, where the opportunities are. And we talk about a living wage. And I'm going to quote James from what he says in the interview. He says, we pay a living wage, but I just don't see why you should get a gold star for that. Why isn't it the norm? Here, here, Mr. Bartle. Why isn't it indeed? So look, this is a fascinating take on a complicated global issue. Plus, there's heaps of insights in here about how to set up, run and make a success of a sustainable, ethical fashion label. As always, dear listener, I just love you. Drop me a line on Instagram or Twitter at Mrs. Press and tell me what you think of the show. And also, please tell your mates, I really need your help to help build our audience and find new people to bring into this conversation. Hello, James. Hi, Claire. How are you? I'm happy that I've got to talk to you because we've been trying to set this up for a long time. It it is a real privilege for me to be able to actually meet you face to face. Oh, thank you. I'm going to start just by diving into this. You watched a Liam Neeson movie and you had a revelation. I did, yeah. What is that movie? Tell us what happened. Oh, well, it's, uh, you know, Liam's the hero of the story and his daughter and her friend are uh, stolen um, whilst travelling or trafficked and um, And sold for sex. And it's called Taken. It's called Taken, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I watched the movie and obviously it was a pretty uh, gripping movie and then it also had some stats that these events really do happen around the world and I guess it highlighted my ignorance because I had no idea that human beings were being stolen and sold. Um, And I just remember that that night leaving the movie with my wife just feeling outraged and wanting to become a sniper or... I don't think we want to say sniper. You don't like sniper. That's what I really wanted to do. Is it? I wanted to go and assassinate these people. Really? Oh, heck yeah. Like, we've got to get rid of these baddies, you know? Okay, fine. <laughs> but, but yeah, <laughs> sure, cut it out, leave it in. Um, Batman, Superman, you know, it's the, um, I guess, the idea of being able to, well, especially when you come from a place of ignorance and you watch something like that, often your automatic um, reaction, or for me, it definitely is, is, well, how do I solve this problem? And the way to solve this problem is to get rid of those people that are actually doing this, you know. But as we got into it and, um, you know, really start to dig into this issue, you know, we, we soon found that the problem was uh, desperation by both sides. You know, even those who traffic people often are driven there out of desperation. You know, we'll find that often it's a woman that is at the lead of taking these, these other women and selling them for sex. So it's, um, it's a very complicated issue. Paint me a picture of where you were then. So where did you live and... Where were you at in your life when you just happened to watch this movie in the cinema? Yeah, well, I was fairly newly married. And um, at that time in my life, I was um, doing freestyle motocross shows and welding. And yeah, it was just a night out actually with two of our friends and just entirely unaware of some of these global issues that, that are greater today than they've ever been in history. I'm interested in then the next step because I think we can all relate to watching something perhaps on the television or on a cinema screen or reading something that shakes us up and makes us want to change the world but most of us then after worrying about it for a little while put it aside or maybe we talk to our friends about it and then decide that we are powerless you decided to meet with an NGO and find out more about trafficking that's quite a an unusual step who who does that and how did you decide to do that and where did you go well, it was actually a couple of years later before I came across an NGO, and that was actually by chance. Um, I'd been stirred the entire time, didn't really know what to do other than, um, you know, my wife is a journalist and she loves to read and research. So she did a lot of research and would then filter back this information over those years um, sporadically. And 
I guess so started to become educated on and then coming across this um, NGO was an opportunity to be able to learn more and actually go and see it firsthand. So from there it was jumping on a plane and going into Thailand and Cambodia and and witnessing what it actually looked like on the streets for somebody that had been um, stolen and sold or forced into these horrific things. As someone who hasn't got a background in NGO work, who's basically a motocross rider with a welding business, yeah. how do you persuade them to let you come? Well, they actually invited me. Um, I was actually doing a, a show at the time and they were at the event. And um, so the director for Australia was there and he came up and said that, you know, I really think it'd be good for you to, after I'd inquired yeah. how they do it, he said, I really think you should come and see it. So he was taking some people over um, to, you know, try and get get their help and God, support. Though, fate. Isn't it interesting yeah. that yeah. the universe throws you these opportunities? I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, Sometimes no. I think you put it out in the air and then, you know, I know that's a bit... <laughs> the magic of the universe. I like it though. Like you put it out and you focus on it, and then it comes to you. Yeah. Look, I um I firmly believe that I'm meant to be doing what I'm doing, and I and I firmly believe that you know this is part of my my journey that the, running across these guys and learning what I could from them. You know, um, getting involved with them um, in Cambodia and watching how they work with people and. Um, you know, bring vulnerable women into their care and then equip them and then put them back out into the world. It was really, you know, it was, it's, it's so liberating to see that, you know, human beings um, have this ability to help each other and we've all got it. And so I guess for me that was inspiring and I wanted to be part of it and, and help. But I guess the catalyst for me to actually get serious about it was on that trip when I had the opportunity, or I don't even like calling it opportunity, when I uh, had the experience of seeing a, a little girl who looked like she may have only been 13 and you know she was for sale on the street and I mean it, it still tears me up today even when I if I actually picture it because um, she looked scared and she was most certainly vulnerable to the prey of the um, men and women you know patrolling the street and I asked the rescue agency what we could possibly do to help her, and he said, "If you look around, they're everywhere, you know." And oh. this is this is the problem. Um, you told me before that you had a niece at that time. I had two nieces at that time, and I now have two daughters of my own. And I imagined if it was one of my nieces, how far would I go? What would I do to help? And um, I actually walked away that night with them, and that was very confronting. And I feel that that was the moment because I guess I even feel a little guilt. I often wonder what happened to her. Um, And so I guess I've got a really deep conviction and I can't escape it. Gosh. Human trafficking is one of these big, ugly, scary issues that we all know exists. But I think that most of us or many of us feel reluctant to dig too deep into it because we feel powerless. We don't know how to change it. And it's horrific. I mean, I've actually done a bit of research around this prior to talking to you, James, for a new book that I'm working on. And the numbers are horrible and the facts of it are disturbing. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, sometimes we just don't want to look too closely at these things that are so dreadful. Mm. What do you think about that? (laughs) But I was going to say to you, would you like to paint as a picture of the global situation with human trafficking. So according to World Vision, trafficking is akin to modern slavery and it occurs when people are forced into exploitative situations for profit. Mm. Men, women and children are all exploited for a wide range of purposes. But tell me a bit about what you've learned about this issue globally. Well, I guess that it's, you know, one of the biggest illegal trades in the world. It's worth $150 billion annually. And of that, you know, there's there's 40-odd million people in modern-day slavery today. Um, you know, and 25 million of those people are actually in forced labour. And, um, 
to me, I just can't even fathom how another human being could actually, how this trade could even get that kind of momentum, you know, when there's so many good people out there that would never allow anything like this to happen. But I think it's like you said earlier, Claire, it's that we've, it's too big and what can I actually do about it? Um, But I think it changes when everybody does just a tiny little bit, you know, just what you're doing here and just making people aware of these issues is is the first step. And just people being aware of it actually has the ability, and, and especially through the fashion industry, we have the ability to eradicate some of these huge global problems through this incredible industry that we get to work in. Mm. I mean, I know that this isn't the area that you particularly work in, but modern slavery is rife in the fashion supply chains. I mean, just for one example, if you look at cotton fields yeah. with forced labour with children picking cotton, who are sometimes favoured, I read this and it just sent a chill down my spine because their soft little fingers don't damage the cotton crops oh goodness, Ugh. yeah i mean yeah. Yeah. i've not heard that before right. um obviously very aware of the children in the cotton fields and you know and the forced labor in fact you know we've our job is to is to find and employ people like that um you know anybody who's vulnerable but um there's chilling stories that you hear actually as you start to walk around this part of the industry where you've you know working with other ngos and those who actually are rescuers it's horrific to hear the tales of what actually happens out there and specifically within the fashion industry. And so I, I think that's where the opportunity becomes exciting because we actually have the opportunity to change it for the future generations. And I think it's wonderful to see you know, the millennial generation come through and become so educated on these issues and very vocal on them as well um, that I think that that's a really good start to actually see these things come to fruition. You're also doing something to change it every single day without land denim. So in your workshop, which is in Cambodia, you employ and train women who've escaped from being trafficked into the sex industry. Can you tell us what that can look like and what some of these women have experienced or or been through? Perhaps just give us one example. Yeah, sure. Look, um, we employ a range of women from all sorts of backgrounds, um, just vulnerable women. It could be that they have a disability, that they've you know been sold for sex or labour or um, all sorts of things, just poverty. But um, I guess if I was to give you one story, it'd be uh, you know a story of a girl that was actually trafficked into Malaysia for it was forced labour, um, and just the story of her being able to be identified, rescued through another agency, and then um, sent to be able to get the care back in Cambodia and thankfully we're able to give her the employment that she needs with the care that she also needs with the trauma that she's been through so for her it's a like a dream come true because she now lives back with her family and has this job where she's got the support system she needs to be able to rebuild her life. How do you access the women who work in your workshop? Yeah so that's that's a a really important step and it's important to get some really good alliances with the right organisations. So for us, it's aligning with NGO groups, um, so rescue agencies, counselling groups, um, government, anybody that comes across somebody that's in need, then we will, if there's an opening, uh, bring them on. We're going to talk more about how Outland operates and exactly what you do to empower women. But let's just rewind a bit and talk about how you went from being concerned with a big, ugly, complicated issue and let's face it, one that's mostly happening outside of Australia and a long way from your own experience, to launching a denim brand. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's bizarre. It is definitely bizarre. And I was the definitely the least qualified person for the job. So, And I think, again, because of my ignorance, it was played in my favour. Um, I didn't realise that it was such a big problem. I realised it was a problem at that stage, but I didn't realise denim was so difficult to make. And... 
I didn't realise that it was the most competitive garment out there to try and <laughs> oh, sell as well. Is it? So, yeah. So, you know, everybody, everybody's got these, there's so many denim brands out there. and So you had zero knowledge of the denim industry I had zero knowledge. beyond wearing jeans. Yeah, totally. Uh, but I've always loved denim. And so if I was going to do anything in fashion, and I do love fashion, um, I'm a bit of a basics guy, but it had to be denim. I never wanted to have a T-shirt brand, um, though funnily enough, we've just started making them. But denim is that that item in everybody's wardrobe that they love and they'll actually talk about denim you know you'll actually ask yeah, somebody what jeans you're wearing for sure. and I, but I think it even goes beyond denim nerds I think it's like you see somebody wearing a pair of jeans that you like and and you want to know what they are and so you know for us I, I guess the ignorance is was definitely there but there's there's a little strategy behind it and I guess that's the loyalty that comes with it as well so um, you know, if you find a pair of jeans that you love, you're probably going to wear them, you know, for the next 10 years, especially with women, they they do. I was going to say, especially men. My husband has jeans he's been wearing since I met him. Yeah, really? Yeah, <laughs> excellent. You've been married for 12 years. Yeah. So, you know, that's a good innings, you know. Um, yeah, look, we, we have a huge opportunity by using denim, uh, I guess, for the fact that it's also one of the, the worst perpetrators of pollution when it comes to manufacturing it and the, the process that it's used. Um, so for us, if we're able to harness one of the worst and then turn it into something that's really positive, then we can make have a global impact with, you know, coming up with new ways of being able to process it. Um, and, you know, for us, we've, we've put a lot of resource into exactly that and we've employed, we've got an engineer on staff now that, her entire job is just looking at how it's done better. How do we change things? How do we, just because it's marketed to us, greenwashing and these sorts of things, you know, this laser technology. Well, we want proof that this stuff isn't just creating another problem. You know, we want to come up with ways that actually it turns it into a positive rather than it still being not as bad. Right. Yeah. You use organic cotton. Yes. Yeah. We use organic cotton and there's a lot of debate out there, you know, BCI, um, certified That's cotton, the better cotton, better initiative. cotton initiative yeah. and um, organic. Um, so there's debate around that and there's positives and negatives for both. Um, but for us, we've chosen to go with organic because that's where I guess the research that we're aware of would actually indicate is probably a better choice right now. How about dyes? How do you handle that? Yeah, vegetable dyes. Um, and I didn't know that. Yeah, really? yeah, so we use vegetable dyes. And that was exciting for us to be able to actually get dyes that are going to last in your well, in your I didn't even well. know that was possible. So you're yeah. proving that it is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we've all, I'm sure listeners have seen, and we will share some links in the show notes, all of those pictures about rivers turning blue from yeah. denim dyes. Yeah. And, you know. yeah. It's not clean. It's not a clean industry generally. No, it's not. Although I should say before I'm damning the entire denim industry, <laughs> there are also some leaders in the big yes, denim. I mean, Levi's absolutely. is doing good stuff around waterless, etc. So there is a lot of innovation in this space. There is. Uh, there's a lot of research going into it, which is exciting because, you know, again, if denim can change its ways, if denim can actually clean up its act, then that's a big change straight away that we're going to see results from really quite quickly, I think. I should say that even though, James, you were a welder. Yeah. And a bike rider, a motocross rider. I don't even know how to say that, but I do know what it is. Um, And you say that you only knew about denim because you wore it. You do have a secret weapon in your wife, who I know, Erica. Yeah. Who I know from her magazine days, and she's a journalist, and she knows about clothes. Yeah, she she loves clothes. How was she involved, and in what ways did she help you at the beginning? Yeah, so really heavily involved all the way along. I mean, she loves to research. So, and and she's also, I guess, looks at everything from a journalistic point of view. So, if I make a statement, she's got to prove it, or to be right or wrong. She should you know? be in this room. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, so um, it's all about you know 
verifying our facts and the research and and if somebody says this then she's got to back it up and you know so for us she's given us this really solid foundation of good solid research from very reliable sources and that's a consistent thing for us i mean if you go and have a look at our um, policies and procedures around our communications and everything that we talk about and our research you'll see that erica's got documents upon documents of stuff that we've got to follow so, James, how many women do you employ today? And tell us about your workshop, where it is and what it looks like. Our workshop is based in Kempong Cham. So we're about two and a half hours north of uh, the capital city, Phnom Penh. And uh, we set up there for a reason. And, and one of those reasons is that um, a lot of these women are taken from or forced into, even by choice sometimes, to have to go to the city to work. And so they don't get to spend their life with their families because they work six days or seven days a week. And so they just can't go home. Um, so for us, if we set up in a more of a rural area, then oh. they're near their families. And for us, it's about normalising their life so that there's a family life and they can interact with their friends and family just like we get to enjoy here in Australia. So that's the main reason for that. But our um, our staff is a total of 65. That includes everybody that works for our land. And there's 40 seamstresses. And then we've got a few more that are in administration and the finance and then management there as well. So it's been a a very slow and steady growth and we see that as being one of the really important things to making sure that we stay sustainable is getting our foundations really solid before you expand and Mm -hmm. I've sat with a lot of consultants um, and every single one of them has the exact same thing to say that getting that foundation right is the most important thing we'll ever do in our business so that when we build it's solid you know and we've just entered a phase where we've launched our brand into Canada and now just going into the US and um, you know we've had such an overwhelmingly positive experience doing that that we realize now that oh gosh if we hadn't have spent the time and and money and all sorts of resources on getting that right we would be very shaky right now. Mm. I mean you started seven years ago sure you told me before that you funded it yourself for a little while I mean through the welding business. Yeah yeah so we started as a not-for-profit and so I was you know either flipping sausages to try and sell with others that were involved and um, for charity events yeah like anything fundraising trying to keep this thing going. You didn't have a part-time job as a short order cook. (laughs) No I didn't I didn't honestly it was it was quite funny you know I can remember counting coins out of a, a milk bottle at my my um, wow. uncle gave me, you know, like yeah. to get to Cambodia. Um, you know, we often laugh about it, and and then started. So you literally having fundraisers at home. Uh, like- yeah, everything, like Erica would get all these old clothes. They'd have these swap meetings, and they'd raise some money to try and get there. And so we started in that way, and then I started a welding business and used that to fund the project. Um, it soon outgrew that and needed to take it to a for-profit model so that I could raise capital and take the business to the next level. So we really got to a stage where we, we knew we it either doesn't work and we've got to close it down. And, and the idea of that to me was devastating. I, I'd picture hopping on a plane, flying over and telling our staff that, you know, they've got to look after themselves now. And I think if you were to ask Erica, that's probably the only time she's ever seen me overwhelmed with anxiety is just you know, sitting on the side yeah. of that bed, just I cannot fathom ever doing that, you know. So so we went and took it to a for-profit model and, um, you know, my experience there has been nothing but positive. It is the best thing. I am now so passionate about social enterprise based on the fact that it could change the world, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the biggest advocate for it because raising that capital um, with investors, which was a really easy process, I might was add. Was it? Very, I thought you were about to say, which is really tough. And everybody said, oh, gosh, that's going to be tough. You know, you're going to have have everything perfect 
no, it was really easy. I've got four investors. I've got um, three Australians and a Canadian. Um, the Canadian guy is, you know, he's 30 years in the fashion industry. He saw the response that when we had our first meetings in um, Canada and he was like, he's never seen a brand do what, what we were God, able to well do. Well done. Yeah. So, you know, we've launched into Canada with the three top um, department store retailers with Holt Renfrew, Harry Rosen and Sporting Life over there. So that's our first season they were the stores we went to. We went to the top and started there, and now we're moving into the US to try and you know have the same sort of strategy. And it's so interesting and so exciting because it's proof that a business model that gives back can be successful. And I yeah. know that we're seeing more of this. When you started seven years ago, the mainstream fashion conversation wasn't talking about sustainability. No, that's right, Claire. It was people looked at me and I, they just didn't get it. You know, or they thought it was cute. You know, and, and oh, I got that as well. I was like, oh, your little thing, Claire. Are you enjoying <laughs> yes. that little green thing? How are yeah, you going with that? Totally. <laughs> when are you coming back to the real world? Yeah, it's my pet hate. I still get it every now and again. Oh, that's cute. I was I like, I don't oh, get it now because now oh. everyone's going, oh, sustainability is so yeah, hot right now. Yeah. I'm like, yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, look, I must say that, you know, things have changed drastically where if I had tried to raise money to do this seven years ago, nobody would have given me the money outside of a donation, you know. But you, <laughs> Get you proved off. when you went out there to raise that capital, you had proved you had a track record. That's right. We had proved we could pull women out of poverty by that stage. So, you know, I'm confident to say that if somebody comes in to work with us under our business model, we can get them out of poverty. Um, well, when I say we, I need to rephrase that. Mm. Actually, if somebody comes to work under our business model, they can get themselves yeah. out of poverty, you know, and that's really where the power of this is, is that we're not saving the day. Let's talk about that. You and I yeah. talked about this before, but I, I do think it's interesting. How do we broach this idea of the kind of saviour? I mean, we began this conversation with you saying that your first instinct when you watched that film was to think, how can I be Superman? How yeah. can I save the day? Yeah. But that isn't how it works in real life, is it? No. And actually, it's kind of dangerous. Like, who yeah. wants to be the white colonial saviour walking into another country saying, let me help you? You know, there's Absolutely. something a bit grim about that, right? There is, yeah. And I know you understand that, and that's not how you do it. So talk to me about that. I went there with that mentality, though. I thought I was going to save the day. I didn't know how, but... As we've gone, we've learned so much, you know, and there's, it's, you've got to understand the culture and it's taken a long time still trying to learn, the, learn more about the culture. Um, but this idea of empowerment is, is the key. It is the absolute key to changing their situation um, for a long time, you know, for, for the rest of their lives as they pass it on to their children. So for us, our business model was, was built out of a lot of trial and error. Um, so we started by overpaying um, that created issues. Um, then we started because then we started by going, oh, you're not really trying, but you poor thing. And that patronizing doesn't work. It's well. patronizing, you know. And although I don't think they felt patronized, it is. It's not respectful of them. And you know that's that's taken us a long time to really develop where we know that if we empower them with the right tools and we put the right structure in place so they can be successful, they are. But also it's about self-running, isn't it? It's about who is running the workshop. Yeah, we've got locals. You know, the, the idea is that we try and, you know, the people within the communities that we try and build them up. One of the girls who started working with us, you know, she's now one of our most skilled seamstresses and I was only speaking to my operations manager last night about this girl and how we want to elevate her into the next position, which is a managerial position based on... She came from no skill seven years ago to now being able to run an international denim manufacturing plant. You know, like she doesn't know everything, but she is a very skilled girl, you know. And 
Let's just talk about that wages thing again. So you pay a living wage? Yeah, yeah, we pay a living wage. How, um, tell us how it all works. Well, we give them a job and we pay them a living wage. And I guess that's that's something that always kind of frustrates me a little bit. It's like I hear people going, oh, and we pay a living wage. And although it needs to be stated, I just don't see how you get a gold star for that. <laughs> um, you know, it's a living wage. It should be the minimum, you know. But it isn't. It I isn't, very I know. few brands pay a living wage. In fact, if we want to talk about the... The Ethical Fashion Report 2018 that Baptist World Ed puts out. Yeah. Really, big brands don't pay a living wage. They no. talk talk the talk about going to do it one day. Yes. But they pay a minimum wage, and we've discussed on this podcast the difference before between yeah. a minimum wage and a living wage. Yeah, yeah, a huge difference. But unless brands are fair trade certified, most of them don't pay a living wage when they produce offshore. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, the statistics are pretty hor- horrifying, actually, to to think of the amount of clothing that's produced globally, and then. Um, that I think only 5% of these brands that, that were rated in this particular report pay a living wage. You know, um, I, just, I just can't even fathom how any CEO can allow that to happen. Often big business likes to use weasel words so that they distract us from the facts. They deflect. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they talk about, I can't even think of them, but, you know, management speak that's just a lot of opaque rubbish that basically puts you off the scent of the real story. But living wage is a pretty clear and explicit phrase. Yeah. If you're not paying a living wage, oh dear. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised that they're still using that word and yet people are getting away without doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I don't understand. I just, in today's day and age, when we know so much um, about this particular issue, and the, and the results of it that play out across the countries that we produce in and we're still okay to do it. So, But on that wage thing, so generally speaking, many social enterprises will focus on this whole provide a great job and pay a living wage. But you go a step further. Do you want to talk about the sort of four components of your business model that you sort of worked out yourself as you went yeah, along? Yeah, yeah. If you want to make bold claims like like we do make, um, like I just told you about how a woman can get herself or an employee can get themselves out of poverty if they're working under our business model, then it's got to be pretty solid. And so for us, it's it's been collecting data for the entire time to to actually track does it or does it not work. And it's made of four components, like you said. It's and the first thing it it's giving an opportunity and there's a living wage. So they're the first two things, um, but those things are just should be standard. And so. If every business operated with just those two things, then yes, I do believe that change could be brought about, but it would take for everybody to to get on this bandwagon. But because they're not, there's two other elements which have become really important um, to being able to create this change. And one is that um, we give training and education as well. And the training component is that we can get somebody who's completely unskilled and we will invest in them to give them a skill in this industry so that they actually have a career path. And then we even also... Even if they leave you. Even if they leave us. So our, our motto is that we want to equip people so well that they can get a job anywhere. So then the education comes into it. So they're now earning a living wage and they may have never earned that much money before. And so they don't even know how to manage it. So all of a sudden they're going to start budgeting and thinking about finance, paying maybe old debts, bad debts. Um, So we bring people in to educate them on finance and finance management. And then English is a really valuable skill to have in Cambodia. So we teach them how to speak English. Every week they get English lessons. And then, you know, women's health and infant care. Um, I mean, self-defense, we did a course on that just the other day. Like, Yeah. So for us, it's just looking for an opportunity to further their 
I guess, knowledge and their skills and so that they are so equipped that they can honestly get a job anywhere. And we've had a couple of women that have been married and had to move to different provinces. And remember the first girl that reported back to she got a job as a supervisor in a factory, you know. So coming from nothing to becoming a supervisor in years, you know, is just because there's this structure around them that loves and supports them. And yes, we have to give them grace if there's a, it's a bad day and you know, they're thinking about the past or whatever. So we have counsellors and things that work with them as well. But um, yeah, and, and that's, that's vital. And therefore, it makes it difficult for a, I guess, a traditional factory to be able to employ people from a traumatic past because they can't stop the production line. Mm. Um, and that's the difference with us, you know, mm. where we, we try to create this family environment. And although it's easy for us because we're small, we've always had the idea of we're setting this up so that it can be dropped anywhere. So for us, we don't just want to be in Cambodia. We, we want to set pods up everywhere where this model can be transferred to different cultures and, you know, regions in the world. It's really great, isn't it? I hope everyone's listening to this who's got deep pockets and wants to set up businesses all around the world. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. James, here's a quote from you from an old interview that we did for a magazine. You said, what we want to do is create the sorts of workplace conditions that we take for granted in Australia. For example, fair pay, sure, but free from harassment, with regulated hours, allowing people just a life outside of work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we stand by that. That's... That's entirely what we want to create. Um, we often say that if we're not prepared to work there, why should they? You know, so that's even the cleanliness of a workspace. Um, you know, you'll often go for anybody who's ever had the opportunity to go and tour some of the factories where you know the big brands are made. Um, some of them are great, many of them are not, and especially if you get to the subcontractor level where some of the big factories will contract out some of the work you get to conditions which are appalling. Well, we hear so many stories about dreadful ventilation. I mean, on this podcast, Megan and Gab from Walk So Good told an horrific story. I love how I said, an horrific. Oh, my God, I've (laughs) swallowed the grammar dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to leave that in. Um, I don't know why I'm laughing because I'm about to tell a dreadful story, but about um, women who were routinely given out speed-based drugs to keep them working long hours and even pregnant women who were given drugs that were basically like you need to work longer hours and this will help you yeah and we hear this stuff about dreadful ventilation about people having to put their hand up and ask if they can go to the loo Mm, yeah wow i mean this stuff is rife in the fashion supply chain it really is i mean we've got one girl i can think of straight away that you know she came to us through forced to work in an area of the factory where the chemicals were just making her really sick you know and she couldn't get transferred oh god out of and, and i was thinking ventilation as in it's too hot but in fact of course yeah, breathing in chemicals toxic fumes. yeah um you know workplace health and safety all those things you know i mean there's some some tragic stories of boiler pots and things like that blowing up and you know it comes down to i guess training and um investing into each employee so that they, they actually have a good understanding of what they're doing and the risks involved and if you're not prepared to invest in your people like that if you treat them just as a commodity then we see these horrible results of you know death and people losing their mm. lives you know people losing their mothers and sisters and mm. wives and you know for our clothes i mean that's for, the most exactly. disgusting part of well, it well just so that we can have them cheap Eesh. In October 2017, the minimum wage for garment workers in Cambodia was raised by 11% to $170 a month. That sounds like a good thing. Yeah, well, it can be a good thing. It is complicated. Um, I mean, for us, you start at living wages, which is just above minimum wages there in Cambodia now. So they're getting close to getting up to a living wage. But um, 
I guess the issue or the fear that I have around this fairly drastic increase is that brands are not in a place where they still really care enough to pay more. So therefore, my fear is that um, the garment industry will start to leave Cambodia. And I know that there's about 800,000 garment workers in the country. And so if the big brands leave, there isn't anything for these people to do. Um, so we're going to see huge, huge issues there. So I we think we know they do. We know they chase the cheapest needle. We know yeah. that they go and look for the next great cheap exploitative territory. That's right. And I, and I guess in, on that, it's that once upon a time I would have said boycott the bad brands, the brands that don't care. Today I'd probably change my opinion slightly, and I'd say everybody needs to move toward this together. Yeah. Um, it can't just be the factory. I saw a comment on on something we posted there yesterday, saying you know the problem is the factory and. I wanted to respond and say, actually, no, the problem is also you. You know, I want you to go to your wardrobe and look at what you're wearing. Now I want you to be able to come back and tell me if you even know where they're made. And if you do, now I'm not expecting everybody knows that. That's a, that's a huge ask right now. But if we all move in that direction along with the brands and the factories together, which I yeah. think is slowly starting to happen, then we won't have issues where we have the potential of 800,000 people being out of work or, you know, countries just being, you know, pillaged for all their worth and then left in the aftermath of you know, fashion. On this podcast in series one, when I interviewed Kalpona Akhtar, the Bangladeshi garment workers union leader, she reiterated what you just said, that boycott is not a good solution. No. You know, boycotting made in Bangladesh leaves 4 million garment workers potentially out of work. Exactly, yeah. So it has to be about partnership and yeah. about conversations with brands and and I believe in that anyway. I mean, I love the fashion industry because I love fashion. I don't yeah. want to see no fashion industry. I just want to Absolutely. see a better one. <laughs> I'm with you, Claire. Um, mm. You know, I think that's what excites me so much about what we're trying to do as well is that, you know, we've invested a lot into creating a business model that works. Um, and if this model, if we can prove that this actually gives investors a good return. So that's actually part of the journey for me in my mentality is that once upon a time I was a martyr, you know, I couldn't earn anything from it either. But now today it is I want to give my investors bigger returns than they could earn in the traditional method of investing in fashion. And now I know that sounds, and everybody says, you know, it's very unrealistic, James, but I don't think so. I think that it's possible because I've seen how rapidly this part of the market has grown and how rapidly people are changing their perception, especially coming through with this millennial generation. So for me, I have this amazing opportunity to be at the forefront of this change mm. and therefore if we can prove it more brands are going to go this way more people are going to start to support the brands that are using this kind of model and that is going to have drastic impact across the globe didn't you just become a b corp yeah yeah we've just become a b corp as well and actually you know b corp was a big reason why i decided i could go to a for-profit model when i saw that there was a body that would come and audit us and so that people could be confident that, you know, the reason we do what we do is what we say it is. That gave me the confidence to go, okay, now I can go to a for-profit model. And they have a fairly stringent auditing process. But, you know, I'm stoked because we're the first denim company in Australia to Are become you? a B Corp. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Rad. We'll share some information about B Corps. They're great things to support. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, you can be confident once they audit you that, you know, they've gone fairly deep. And um, I must say that, um, you know, going through even this latest fashion report and being um, audited by them as well, that was a really deep audit. Um, and it was a great process um, for us as a brand because it also highlighted areas where we weren't strong. You know, things we were they? Well, workplace health and safety, um, getting a workplace health and safety audit. 
simple things that we've never thought about, but it'd be a simple thing like there should be a cover on a uh, exit light or just little simple things that are easily overlooked. But going through and having a third party come through our facility and audit us on things like that, very simple things. But now we've got this list of ways that we can improve. Um, another one was voice in our, um, somebody to, in our workforce. So equipping them with, um, I want to say conflict management. So even since the report audit was done, we saw that that was a whole and have been able to have someone trained already, you know, so, so as in conflict management, so the voice of the workers. Um, so somebody in there is the voice for all the staff. Now, for us, we don't really need it because we've got such a good relationship with management and everything because we're small. As but having we grow, the systems in place. Now it's like, oh, here's, as we grow, this could become a problem. So, so do you see the audit process? Obviously, as a small company, it's different to mm. being a mega fast fashion brand, but yeah. do you, it sounds like you see the audit process as valuable in itself. Well, if you want to be good at what you do, it's so valuable. You've got somebody coming in that has the experience, has researched it way deeper than we have what's required and highlighting your weaknesses and i see that as that is an amazing thing uh yeah it would hurt if i got an f in their report and then i'd be probably feeling a bit bitter about it so it's easy with our results to be glad i should (laughs) just say you got an a plus rating in the report that we mentioned before which is the ethical fashion report 2018 can i also add claire that it was across all the categories (laughs) yes you can yeah (laughs) Is that like the best mark you ever got in your whole life, including school? <laughs> Everybody has said it. All my friends have gone, first time you've ever got an A+, plus, hey? Well done, James. Yeah. No, no we're, we're actually really excited. And for me, like, I know what it took for my team, the sacrifices that individuals in our team here in Australia have had to make um, for us to get our business to that kind of level. Um, so for us, it's, it's a real celebration because it's the first time we've had an outside party come in and really stringently... And honestly, the anxiety I felt when I started seeing what was required, I'm like, but we've never thought about this Mm. or that or this. Um, I hope we pass, you know. So for us, it's celebration because it's a big achievement for us. I want to finish just by talking about style. Yeah. How cool are your jeans, James? How much work did you have to do to get to the point where the design was on par with the value system behind the brand? Yeah. Oh, that's a, such a good question, Claire, because when you start something like this, you know, you've got this bleeding heart and everything seems to revolve just around that. But we did realise fairly early on that if the product wasn't beautiful, it will never be sustainable, it will never help anybody. And besides that, we do love denim and we do love fashion. And so for us, you know, we're passionate about creating beautiful product. And that comes into the, our supply chains and where it's sourced, not just from an ethical point of view, but from a quality point of view. So that we've got beautiful cottons that are being used. You know, the dyeing process, like I said, was vegetable dyes so that it's comfortable. And, you know, people people notice the difference as soon as they put our jeans on, you know, because of those, the lack of that starchy feel when you put it on. So you um, have a design team. Yeah. Well, I have a designer um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I would like to include myself in that design team. Um, so we, yes, let's, let's call it a team, but um, no, not really. We've got an American girl who is incredible, who spent a lot of time working in Bangladesh um, and traveling around and seeing like working for the big factories and, you know, having her come on board was a long process. You know, she does these beautiful design work. Um, but for a little company to actually be able to afford somebody like that, um, it was a long process. And she has, uh, look, the first full range that she's entirely done is going to be our, you know, our spring 19. 
that will come out, and that's for the Northern Hemisphere. So that one there, I am so excited about because you What's know. What's her name? Michaela Schools is her name, and the feedback we get when we go to retailers is, we love your core range because it's a core range is what we've got. We're the basics guys, but we'd love to see some fashion. And so we've gone into the, you know, a little bit more of the fashion element with this spring range. And I've got to say, I'm really excited. We're bringing white denim in. We've got patchwork. We've got like, there's just so much, so much beautiful stuff with detail that we've put into our range. Um, The washing processes and everything, you know, there's just so much, um, you know, blood, sweat and tears has gone into creating something beautiful this time. So I'd say we've moved into the arena with everybody else where product is most certainly number one. When you were... Collecting coins at your sausage sizzle, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> running a welding business yeah. at night at all the time to try yeah. to raise this money and wondering if this would ever happen. Yeah. What would you say to yourself looking back seven years later? Oh, man, what would I say? There's still a long road in front of you. <laughs> yeah, we're not there. You know, we've got a long way to go. And I think, again, you know, touching on the actual the fashion element of what we do, you know, we need to be better and keep improving. But every time we produce something, you can see the difference. So I would say to myself that you just keep going, you know, you, I get emails and questions regularly about um, people wanting to start something like me and like we've got here. And the thing I like to ask first is like, how much stamina do you have, <laughs> you know? Because it, as you know, Claire, like to get the things um, going that you've been able to get going, you know, writing books and, you know, this podcast series and all of that, it takes a lot of hard work and sacrifice. Um, and if you're not prepared to part with your money and if you're not prepared to part with your time and a lot of it and actually nearly all of it and which then filters down into your family and your friends and that because you actually start to lose the close friendships because all of your time is spent I've got working. no friends. Yeah, right, I just spent four yeah. months locked in a room writing a book. I'm surprised we even got a husband left. Yeah. Well, I'm lucky to have a wife left. I've got two beautiful little girls too who sacrifice a lot for us to be able to do this. Um, but I guess it's if you really genuinely believe that you can get there, and you're prepared to sacrifice and you're smart. You've got to be smart. You can't just do whatever you want. You've got to actually research and find out that there is a place for you. And you've got to be mercurial and able to change and listen and evolve. Word. And you've got to. There's so many things that go into it, aren't there? <laughs> there's, and you've got to have good people around you. Yeah. Because you can't build a new world on your own. No. I was asked the question there just the other night by somebody and they said, um, you know, so I guess alluding to, you know, did I have a business degree or anything like this? And I said, oh, look, to be honest, well, I don't... a motocross champion, deal. Yeah. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> I got stamina, <laughs> guts, yeah. I, 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 I finished grade nine. Does that count? You know, <laughs> so literally never even finished grade 10. So it's, um, for me, it's all about, you know, not being stupid, surrounding yourself with the right people, like you said. And, um, you know, what do they say? Some of the best CEOs in the world, are the, <laughs> they're not the smartest by a long stretch but they're surrounded by the smartest. And for me, I've been very careful in bringing the right team together, the ones who genuinely care about what it is we're doing, which is, for me, more important than anything, but then the skill set that they've got behind it so that if you bring all those things together, then you've got a powerful team where they will stay up all night to make sure the job is done so that we can get, you know, mm. results. Yeah. Well done. Well, thank you so it's much, It's a very Claire. edifying story, this one. I think that people are going to listen to this and think, this is how we could be doing business. Yeah, I hope so. I, I really hope do. I so too. Thank yeah. you, James. Thank you, Claire. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. We tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. 
Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you Because I love you